Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you that I might impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, to wise, to unwise, so as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now in the book of Romans, we are in the third major division of the New Testament. The first division is the four Gospels, the historical record in quadraphonic of the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. That's section one. Section two is the historical narrative of the book of Acts or the history of the early church from the ascension of Christ to the imprisonment of Paul the Apostle. The third major section is this section, beginning in Romans. It's comprised mostly of epistles, and it's the section of instructive doctrine as laid out in the letters principally of Paul the Apostle. Now, just going over those divisions brings to mind one of the rules of interpretation. When you want to discover what doctrines are to be considered biblical New Testament doctrines versus those that are of human origin, when it comes to a practice of the church, usually we say that we should find it in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, and expand it on in the epistles. That is, if it's something we are to practice now, it should have been taught by Christ, it should be practiced in the book of Acts, it should be expanded upon or amplified in the doctrinal epistles. So we take the Lord's Supper. Is the Lord's Supper for today? Yes. Jesus said to his 12 disciples, do this often in remembrance of me. But in the book of Acts, we see it far expanded beyond the 12. The early church practiced the Lord's Supper. 
And then when we read the epistles, Paul the Apostle tells the church at Corinth and other churches to observe it. When it comes to baptism, is that something that should be practiced now? Yes. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They did it in the book of Acts. It's amplified, written about, spoken about in the epistles. That's the criteria. You can apply it to other things. Foot washing. Should we wash each other's feet? Now, it's a beautiful practice. Jesus did that with his disciples. But we don't find it practiced in the book of Acts. We don't find it expanded upon in the epistles. So if you say, you have to wash feet, no, you don't. And I'm kind of relieved because I'm ticklish, so. <laughs> it's not a New Testament practice. Slain in the spirit, you don't find really anywhere. That's the idea where you blow on somebody or hit them on the forehead and they fall over and get a blessing. Um, you don't find that practiced in any of those three sections, although it has become in some circles a doctrine. Well, Paul is writing to the Romans. And as far as the gospel starting in Jerusalem and then Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, Rome would be then considered one of the uttermost parts of the earth. Though it was considered the center of the world, as far as the developed world was concerned, as far as the gospel beginning in Jerusalem, this is as far as it goes back then, just about. Although Paul did want to go to Spain. Rome was a magnet. Most people saw Rome as the pinnacle of all vacations. If you wanted to go to a cool place, go to the center of activity, it's Rome. It's the heartbeat of the empire, the heartbeat of earth. And even Paul the apostle, strange enough, always had it in his heart to go to Rome. He longed to go to Rome. He said, I wanted to come to you many times, but I was hindered even until now. And then there was that time when Paul was in Jerusalem. And he probably wondered, you know, I'm going to die here because, uh, first of all, he was warned not to go back to Jerusalem. You remember Agabus and all the prophets said, Paul, don't go back. They're going to bind you. They're going to interrogate you. They're going to beat you. And Paul said, so what? I'm ready to die for Christ. Well, Paul was in Jerusalem. The Jewish Christians had talked him into helping some who wanted to take a Nazarite vow that he would finance that part of it in the temple. And so Paul was in the temple one day, and some of the Jewish crowd saw Paul with someone else that they thought was a guy by the name of Trophimus, a Gentile from Ephesus, and they thought that Paul was trying to sneak a Gentile into the Jewish court. And so a big uproar developed in the temple. They almost tore Paul in pieces. They shut the doors of the temple. And then Paul was able to give his apologia, his defense for the faith to the Jewish people in Jerusalem, something he always wanted to do. But it didn't turn out to be a pretty sight. The crowd went absolutely bonkers when he said, God has called me to preach to the Gentiles. And the fact that he would consider Gentiles recipients of God's grace so upset the Jews that they got just in a, in a riot and they had to take Paul and put him in prison. Next day they brought him before the Sanhedrin and Paul gives his defense before the Sanhedrin. Again, not a pretty picture. Uh, Paul perceives that half of the crowd is Pharisee, half the crowd is Sadducees. 
So he sort of pulls a very clever thing. He says, I stand here because I believe in the resurrection from the dead. And the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. So the Pharisees said, we don't see any problem with this guy. The Sadducees said, we do because we don't believe in the resurrection. So they started fighting each other. And so the Roman commander had to take Paul and put him in prison again. Wondering what this guy is, what kind of a stir this guy is creating everywhere he goes. And no doubt that night he was very, very discouraged. But Jesus Christ appeared to him and said, Paul, be of good cheer. For as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you will testify about me in Rome. And I bet Paul went, yes! Confirmation. I always wanted to go. I'm going to go. And so he says here, as we read, I wanted to come to you often, verse 13, but I was hindered until now. He did go. How did he go? Well, he is not only arrested in Jerusalem, he's taken to Caesarea, and he has to wait for two years. And he goes back and forth from trial to trial, governor to governor. And finally, after two years, when Agrippa says, are you willing to stand before the Jews in Jerusalem regarding these charges? He's thinking, man, I, I was just in Jerusalem, and now I'm here, and now you want to send me back. And as a Roman citizen, he had the right to appeal to Caesar, his case before the Supreme Court, Caesar himself. So he said, I appeal to Caesar. Forget you jokers, I want to go to the number one man. Now, he was under obligation of the Romans to be sent to Rome and stand before trial before Caesar Nero himself. So he gets to go to Rome, free of charge, all expenses paid, being hosted by the Roman government as a prisoner, placed on a grain fleet ship from Alexandria to the port in Israel and then off into Rome. So he goes to Rome. Acts chapter 27, he makes it in this shipwreck, gets on another ship, finally goes to Rome in chapter 28, and the book of Acts ends with Paul in Rome, and now we have Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans is the manifesto of Christian freedom. It is the gospel according to grace, as some have called it. It talks about our liberty in Christ apart from the law. It has a theme, and rather than me just telling you about it, I want you to read it in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. He sets out at the beginning the theme of the book, which is the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel of Christ. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Men are born into slavery. No one is born free. Every human being is bound by the sin nature as soon as they come into this world. David said, I spoke lies when I came from my mother's womb. And so, we need to be set free from sin and death, a phrase that he will use in Romans, and set free, this is an interesting paradox, set free to become a slave of Jesus Christ. So right off the bat, Paul, a slave or a bondservant 
of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. The righteousness of God is the theme of Romans. It is a message that the world hates. The world hates the gospel because the world hates the righteousness of God. You say, what do you mean the world hates the righteousness of God? The righteousness of God is conferred freely to sinful, undeserving men and women. The world hates that because the world doesn't want to talk about the sin of man, but the glory of man, the righteousness of man, the goodness of man. I can do it alone. I don't need any help. I'll be as good as I can. And so the world is in direct antithesis to the righteousness that comes from God which is given by faith in Jesus Christ. Think of the thief on the cross. Now there's a guy, both of them, but the one who said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There was a man on the cross who was declared unfit to live in the Roman Empire any longer. That's why he was sentenced to death. He was an insurrectionist, both of them, a thief. probably murdered someone as well, put on the cross, declared unfit to dwell any longer in the empire of Rome, but declared fit to dwell in the empire of Christ. Today you'll be with me in paradise. They may think you're unfit to be in the Roman empire, but today you'll be with me in the kingdom. Why? Because a righteousness was conferred, the righteousness of God, by faith. He believed. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You say, well, that's not much of a statement. Yeah, but it's enough. He called him Lord. He said he was a king because he has a kingdom. He made it personal. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He may not have known a lot about Jesus Christ, but he knew enough to save him. He knew that he was a sinner. He knew that Jesus Christ as king and savior could save him. The book of Romans is one of those books that has influenced more people and is the catalyst of most, if not all, revivals that have ever been recorded in history. It was the book of Romans that transformed Martin Luther. All he knew was the judgment and the wrath of God. The first part of Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God revealed. Martin Luther joined the Augustinian monks in the year 1505. He was a man with a guilty conscience, a broken man, and he began an exposition, being a scholar, in the book of Psalms and then the book of Romans. And what really hung him up is as he studied verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1, that very phrase we have just mentioned, the righteousness of God. He looked at that phrase, and he turned it over and over in his mind, and it really bothered him. Here's his own words. I had greatly longed to understand Paul's letter to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way except one expression, which is the righteousness of God, because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God acts righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby, through grace and sheer mercy, he justifies us by faith. 
Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone open in the doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. He discovered in Romans, it's the righteousness given to me freely that I don't earn. He so loved this book, and of course it did create a stir in Europe, the Protestant Reformation, but he so loved this book that he said at one point, quote, this book, it is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. Would you say that he was affected by this book? He said, know it, every word of it, by heart, read it every day, because it so changed his life from this works-ridden Catholic monk who tried to earn the righteousness of God to just living by faith. Not only Martin Luther, but it affected men like John Wesley, who read Martin Luther's introduction to the book of Romans and said it, it created a strange burning of heart. And he realized that he had to be found in Christ only and believe in him by faith only. And then there was the British reformer, William Tyndale, who said, Romans is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament. And we think of even John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress from the, the Bedford Jail in England. And it's really a, an allegory based on the book of Romans of a man who left the city of destruction and went through the narrow gate and was on the way to the celestial city, freed by faith. And the law was chasing him, but he learned to trust implicitly in the free gift of God, the eternal life that he was given. No wonder then, when Frederick Godet once exclaimed this, quote, O Saint Paul, had thy one work been to compose the epistle of Romans, that alone should have rendered thee dear to every sound reason. This is Paul's Magna Carta. This is an incredible treatise filled with doctrine, filled with lessons, filled with the freedom by grace. Why did he write it? For a few reasons. They're all mentioned in chapter 1. First of all, he wanted to go to Rome. He had not been when he wrote the book, but he always wanted to go. And he kept saying, I wanted to go a lot of times, but I haven't made it yet. It's interesting that he writes this kind of a letter so deep, so detailed, to a church he has never visited. Now, we know that he made three trips called missionary journeys, very extensive missionary trips. But he never made it to Rome any of those times. The only time he made it to Rome, as I said, was the fourth trip as a prisoner in the latter part of the book of Acts. Probably on his third journey, while he came to Corinth the third time, he wrote this epistle to the Romans. Now, you might have this question. Okay. Paul's writing to the church at Rome. Who founded the church at Rome? If Paul didn't go there yet, and it seems like Paul was sort of in the habit of starting churches wherever he went, how did a church in Rome get started? Well, the answer is we don't know, but we could guess. Probably the best guess is found in Acts chapter 2. So if you don't mind, and this is called a Bible study after all, I won't feel guilty having you turn back a book to Acts chapter 2. This is the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. 
Pentecost, one of the three major feasts of the Jews. Every Jew in all the world wanted to visit Jerusalem at least once. Verse 5, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. They were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthian, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. It's my belief, since 3,000 were baptized on this day, that some among that group were visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes. They found their Messiah, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. They come to Jerusalem. The gospel was preached. They received it. They were baptized. They went back to Rome. A church started. Some of the greatest works of God are wholly apart from the planning and strategies of men. It amazes me sometimes to watch church leaders around the world strategize. Okay, now, we'll get the Holy Spirit to do it this way at this time. And then as soon as the Holy Spirit's done that, we'll instruct him to move and do it this way. Paul hadn't even visited Rome, but the seeds of the gospel had been planted in the hearts of men and women, and it spread so that now there's an assembly meeting in Rome. And Paul will go there toward the end of his life. Now, I have read 17 verses. I don't know if we'll be able to get through all of them tonight, but it's my plan to go through these 17 verses. But since this is the introductory study, I thought it would be helpful to give you an overview quickly. Uh, an airplane or at least a helicopter, or maybe I should put it in the local vernacular, a hot air balloon ride over the Book of Romans so that you can see the whole terrain at one fell swoop. Because I think the Book of Romans is misunderstood or just really, uh, um, it's just not understood by a, a vast number of Christians. And it helps to just sort of get it all uh, an outline of it. You could look at the book of Romans in four sections. First of all, the wrath of God. Second, the grace of God. Third, the plan of God. And fourth, the will of God. That's the division of Romans. That's one division. The wrath of God, the grace of God, the plan of God, and the will of God. And beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, is the wrath of God. Look how verse 18 begins of chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's the first division. The wrath of God. Why the wrath of God? Because of man's unrighteousness. God's wrath is against man's... That, that's why the righteousness of God is needed. 
Because the wrath of God is against the unrighteousness of man. Man can't be righteous by himself. Nobody can attain to moral perfection. So we need something from the outside, a righteousness of God. Paul has in his audience three different groups in mind. Group number one, general pagans, just garden variety heathen. Second, he's got in mind moralists, both Jews and Gentiles. I'm a moral, upstanding, religious, good person. He's going to say, baloney. You're even more guilty because you're blind by your own religious morality. Third, he's got in mind self-righteous Jews who think because they are under a covenant of Abraham that they are okay. So he's going to paint a picture at the beginning of the wrath of God revealed against unrighteous humanity. Then there is the grace of God. That's the turning point. Beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, second phase of Romans. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. God's way of making people righteous is to justify them. We'll, we'll discover what all that means, but it's very important. God's way of making people righteous is to justify the unjust by faith. God demonstrates his justice and his love at the cross. Chapter 4, I'm just, this is all in that section, the grace of God. Chapter 4, he goes all the way back to Abraham and says, Look, even Abraham was justified before God, not by works, not by the law, because he lived before the law was ever created he lived pre-Moses, so he was justified by faith alone before the law was ever around. Chapter 5 records the peace that follows because we trust in Christ. And then in that same chapter, Paul compares Adam and Jesus. This is all that Adam messed up. This is all that Jesus undid what Adam messed up. He compares the first and the last Adam, Adam and Christ. Chapter 6 is a series of questions, thinking people are going to ask all sorts of questions about how this applies to me personally. And then chapter 7 is the relationship of the law of Moses to the believer and the struggle of Paul with the law. And then finally chapter 8 is the liberation of the indwelling Holy Spirit, life-giving Holy Spirit. So that's the wrath of God and the grace of God. Beginning in verse or in chapter 9, and lasting through 9, 10, and 11, we have the plan of God. The plan of God. The audience at Rome was a mixed ethnic bag. There were Jews, there were Gentiles. They would have questions. Questions like, why did Israel reject their Messiah? How could that be possible? And now that they have rejected their Messiah nationally, how does that fit in and square with the eternal covenant promises that God made to that nation? And where do the Gentiles fit in? If God made a covenant with the Jews, what about all these people who are not Jews that believe? Those are questions that he addresses. And if you've read Romans before, and I've read it many, many, many times, especially uh, before I taught this. I just read it over and over and over again to get the broad picture. In those chapters, 
is some of the most personal, emotional statements Paul ever made about his own people. How he said, I would even be, if I could, cut off from Christ for all of eternity if I knew that my brethren, the Jews, would be saved. Heartfelt, emotional statements. And then finally, we have the will of God, beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, lasting through chapter 15, verse 13 of that chapter. He makes application of all that he has said so far. And, and by the way, this is Paul's method in all of his letters. Paul will paint pictures, draw out doctrines, and then he will reserve the last part of his book as a personal application. So chapter 12, verse 1 begins, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, perfect, and acceptable will of God. Personal application of all that he has written. In other words, God's will is that all of our relationships be changed radically changed by the gospel. Our relationship to God is radically changed, our relationship to each other, our relationship to the law, our relationship to the past is all changed. So that's the division of the book of Romans. Now let's look at some of these verses one at a time. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you are also called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints." Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's his introduction. Very doctrinal, isn't it? Instead of just going, hi. He puts a lot of stuff in there before he says, hi, grace and peace to you. It's, it's personal, it's doctrinal, it's longer than most all of his other introductions. And probably that is because Paul really wants to endear himself to his crowd he doesn't want them to turn Paul off, so he makes it personal, and he makes it uh, doctrinal as well. He bases it upon substance. Look at the very first verse. Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. One of the things I like about ancient letters is that you know who's writing them at first. You know, we usually say, we would say, dear Romans. How have you been? I've been thinking about you lately. It was great to visit you last summer or whatever. Signed at the very end, page whatever, Paul. Ancient letters have the name first. You know who's writing it. And I like that format a lot better. Because whenever I get a letter, the first thing I do, I don't read it. I look to see who wrote it. Oh, he, she wrote or he wrote it. You know, I, I know who they are. I get the frame of reference. And so he begins opening with his name, Paul. Paul is how we know him after his conversion. What's his original name? Of Saul of Tarsus. He lived in Cilicia. He was born a Roman citizen in a Jewish home, and at age 13, Saul moved to Jerusalem, we think. 
after his bar mitzvah. And he sat under Gamaliel, the famous grandson of Hillel, the famed rabbi of the Jews. And he studied the law under Gamaliel. And he was an avid Pharisee and an avid Christian hater. When the Christians uh, started preaching the resurrection around Jerusalem. The name Paul literally means little one. Or, very literally, shorty. Now, parents would often name their children based upon circumstances at birth or attributes of a child, like Jacob and Esau. We've been through that scenario before. It could be that he was born very, very small, so they called him, you know, Paul. Also, Saul, he had two names. One was in in the Roman Empire, the Greek, and the other one was his Hebrew name, Shaul, which means God hears. But uh, Paul, little one. Now, we don't know what Paul looked like for sure, but there are written records, apocryphal or extra-biblical books, that describe his physical appearance. It is said in this apocryphal book that Paul was very short of stature, bald, had large knit eyebrows joined together, an aquiline nose or a hook nose, he was bold-legged and he had bad eyesight, and thick lips, protruding eyeballs, the record says. So uh, that's just a little visual. Uh, uh, perhaps uh, think Marty Feldman, if that will be of any help to you. That's, that's the only one I know that fits that description. Now, I, I just burst some of your bubbles because you pictured Paul as being tall and deep voice and maybe handsome and rugged. And if I burst your bubble, good, because you know what? God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And maybe Paul wrote that as a personal testimony. That's the record. That's the only record we have of Paul. He calls himself, I love it, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, Paul, the eminent theologian, Ph.D., call me doctor, please, reverend. Paul, the Old Testament scholar, Pharisee. Paul, a slave. What a great title. Maybe we should change all of the cards the business cards for the church and the bulletin and the signs on the doors instead of pastor so-and-so, just slave so-and-so, bond slave. That's what Paul called himself, a bond slave. Now, what a picture that would paint to those who would receive this letter. Rome had as many as, on some reports, 60 million slaves owned by their master. They couldn't do what they wanted. They couldn't do what they wanted when they wanted. Their whole purpose and aim in life was to please their master. They didn't negotiate. So what a picture. I'm a slave of Christ. I obey him. It's not my will, but his will that I'm after. It's a beautiful picture. A bond slave of Jesus Christ. Then he says, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. An apostle is a representative. Originally, the term meant a king's representative, an ambassador. One who is sent out is how we understand it. In a broad sense, every Christian is an apostle. In a broad sense, every believer is sent out, right? Didn't Jesus say, as my Father sent me into the world, so send I you? But then in a a technical, 
narrow sense, apostle refers to a unique group of people, 13 men in the New Testament. The 12 apostles, Matthias replaced Judas, and then Saul of Tarsus, or Paul, who was commissioned personally, uniquely by Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. As Ananias was told by Jesus, go find Saul, I have chosen him to be my vessel to bear my names before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. There were qualifications to be an apostle. You couldn't go to apostle school and get an apostle degree. You had to have seen the risen Lord. And so Paul uses that. Have not I seen the risen Lord? Am I not an apostle? Have not the works of an apostle have been wrought in me? So you had to have miraculous power to some degree, have seen the risen Christ. And Paul was designated the apostle to the Gentiles because his missionary journeys took him far outside of Israel to the uttermost parts of the earth. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, uh, Paul says, Paul, an apostle. Now, here's the qualification. Listen to this, Galatians 1, 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. You don't choose to be an apostle. God chooses it for you. And so the calling that was on his life. Then notice also in verse 1, he was separated to the gospel. A lot of people are separated from something. You listen to their testimony, and uh, they tell you all the stuff they don't do anymore. I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go with girls that do. It's, it's like listening to a spiritual striptease. I've stripped off all of this bad stuff, therefore I'm a Christian. Paul was not only separated from, but separated to the gospel. Now at one point he was separated from all that was not Jewish. He was separated from Gentiles. You know the history of the Jews, the Pharisees. I've told you before that the Pharisees hated Gentiles, non-Jews, so much that they had a saying that God created the Gentiles as kindling for the fires of hell. And they would hold their robes close to their body, lest even the fringe of their garments brush against the dust of a Gentile. Separated from the Gentiles. But what are you separated unto? Paul said, I'm separated unto the gospel. It's important that you're separated from, but also to. What do you do? Not just what do you don't do, what do you do in the kingdom? Whenever there is a marriage... There is a separation from and a separation to. Leave father and mother, cleave into his wife. So at every wedding I always ask, forsaking all others, will you live only unto her as long as you both shall live? And if he mumbles, I say, what, what was that? Because I want to hear a plain, I will or I do. I forsake all others, and I live only unto her as long as you live together. What would it be like if there was no separation? What if on the honeymoon he said, Honey, 
you know, I love this town so much that we're having our honeymoon in, and I, I have a girlfriend here. I'd like to go visit her during our honeymoon. How long would that marriage last? It wouldn't last the honeymoon. No, he's separated from and to her as long as they both shall live. And so Paul is separated, beautiful word, to the gospel. The gospel is the theme, the righteousness of God. It's mentioned many times in this book. It's the Greek word euangelion. Good news, or the great news, as some have translated, it's used 60 times in the in the epistle of Romans. Uh, tonight, I think we just have enough time to look at this introduction and uh, perhaps a few more verses and look at the gospel. First of all, look at the origin of the gospel. He says, separated to the gospel of God. It's not man's good news. It's God's good news for man. Apostles didn't invent it. Hey, let's write something called the good news. And uh, listen, let's, uh, we'll have somebody come, God come and be a man and die. No. This was in its origin from the outside, not invented by man. Who would invent a religion that condemns the whole world? What man on earth would concoct a religion that consigns everybody as sinners apart from God and can only be saved by faith in one person, Jesus Christ? That's the truth. That's the gospel. Its origin is of God. It is the good news. It should be proclaimed as the good news. When you hear some people proclaim it, it sounds like it's the bad news. Try this sometime. Well, if you've ever watched Christian television, I'm not fond of it for the most part. But sometimes it's interesting to take your remote and push the mute button and ask people to figure out what the message is they're saying. So often if you do that I've seen furrowed brows and angry going And, and, and then, you, then you turn the sound back on, and they're saying, God loves you. And you think, man, the body language and the tone and the shrill doesn't seem to match the message. It doesn't sound like good news. It looks like they're really angry. Now, there was a time in church history, even within the last few hundred years, that it was thought that the more somber you are, the holier you are. And so preachers would dress in black and never smile and never crack jokes, let alone play guitar. It, it just, oh, you know, it was just, it was, they dressed like morticians. It wasn't really good news. But anyway, it's the good news. Its origin is of God. Look at verse 2. Not only the origin of the gospel, this is the anticipation of the gospel. Which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. There is continuity between the Old and the New Testament. It's all one seamless book. Prophesied in the Old, fulfilled in the New. Or as one saying says, the New Testament, the New is in the Old contained, while the Old is in the New explained. 
The new is in the old contained. The old is in the new explained. It's one solid thing. The prophets foretold the Messiah. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus resurrected, was with the two disciples who did not recognize Jesus. They didn't believe he was risen. He was perhaps hidden from their view. They couldn't recognize him. And they said, man, we're all bummed out because we believed in Jesus and he's dead now. And Jesus said, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered and entered into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded all things concerning himself. He gave them a prophecy Bible study. I am the fulfillment of all the predictions made in the Old Testament. So it was promised beforehand. It didn't just crop up as some new transition. It was something anticipated from a long time before. Verse 3 is the subject of the gospel. This is what the gospel is about, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The good news is Jesus, period. The good news is not a church. The good news is not a religion. The good news is not a preacher. The good news is centered upon Jesus Christ. It concerns his son. That's why Jesus said to the Jews, if you would have believed Moses, you'd believe me because Moses wrote about me. In Hebrews, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. I have come to do thy will, O God. He's the subject of the Bible. And that's why Charles Spurgeon in his preaching in Victorian England was so successful. He could take any verse of the Bible and run a beeline straight to the cross. It all relates to Jesus somehow. Concerning his son. Now notice there's two contrasting titles in that verse. In verse uh, um, 3 and 4. The seed of David and then the son of God. That refers to his dual nature. On one hand, as to his human origin, I think the NIV says, he's the seed of David. On the other hand, he's the son of God, all in one person. This is the dual nature of Christ, fully man, but fully God. Theologians give this a fancy title, the theanthropic nature of Christ. He is God, theos, and he is anthropos, man. Theanthropic, he's the God-man. Not a good man, just a good man, he's the God-man. It's important to see both natures. The seed of David. Why is that important? If you're Jewish, that's big time important. Why? Because the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, upon the throne of David to order it and establish it from this time forth and forevermore. The promise that was made to David, the promise that was made to Israel about the throne of David that would abide forever, Jesus fulfilled that. He's from the lineage of David. So he can fulfill the kingly role of Messiah. But then also he is called here the Son of God. And, and therein lies the gospel. The good news is that the second person of the Trinity, God, became a man of the seed of David and 
died a substitutionary death as a man, suffering as a man, identifying as a man. God identifying fully with us to take away our sins and to give us everlasting life. The gospel centers around him. I was reading a story about a wealthy man who had many art treasures. And this wealthy man also had one son. And his son wasn't noteworthy, wasn't all that handsome. He was ordinary, but he was dearly loved. And quite suddenly and unexpectedly, the son died. The father, torn by grief, died not soon after, or actually very soon after his son died. Before his death, the father ordered an auction of all of his priceless paintings in his mansion. The first of which to be auctioned was a painting of his son that died. That, that was to be auctioned first, before anything else. So that was put up to bid. Well, nobody really knew the artist who painted it. Nobody was really familiar or good friends with the son, and so there was a lot of silence at the auction until finally one servant of that master and friend of that son bid 75 cents, all that he had. In a very sheepish, embarrassing voice, he bid 75 cents. At that point, the auction was stopped and the rest of the will was read, which said, the father said, whoever finds it in his heart that my son is valuable enough to bid for, gets the rest of my estate freely. And so this poor servant, who was a friend and offered 75 cents, got the whole estate. And when anyone will honor God enough to love his son, to make him Savior and Lord of his life, God will give him his full inheritance, the riches of heaven forever and ever. That is why whenever we preach the gospel or witness with people, stay on target. What's the target? Jesus. You're going to be sidetracked. They're going to say, well, what about all the other religions? Well, what about all the hypocrites? And on and on. Just keep going back to the claims of Jesus Christ. Stay on target. That's where the gospel centers around. Then verse 5, the scope of the gospel. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Do you remember what the angel said over Bethlehem the night Jesus was born? He said, unto you a Savior is born which will be for all people. It's good news for all people. A Savior is born for all people. It's not just for those in the Western culture. I've heard people say, Christianity is a Western religion. We have no right to go anywhere else and impose it. Wait a minute. It first came to the West Bank, right? Bethlehem is the West Bank. It came to Palestine. It worked its way from the East, the Orient, to the West. It's for all people, India, America, anyone. It's the scope of it is worldwide. Notice also in verse 5 the purpose of the gospel. We have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. And we'll say more about that as the book of Romans goes on. But there is a relationship between grace and obedience. You're not saved by obedience. You're not saved by your works. 
but you are saved for obedience. You just believe in Jesus Christ, come as you are, be sincere, admit that you're a sinner who needs God's grace, and he'll save you. See, Jesus always catches his fish first, he cleans them afterwards. But he does clean them. And so we're saved for obedience. And we'll see that relationship later on and how that fits with James' letter of faith without works is dead. Verse 6. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, those in Rome, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God. In other words, it's saying God loves every one of you. You're so precious to him. Called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to tell you something tonight. Each one of you is beloved by God. And I'm going to tell you something else. I've just learned about humans in general. It's hard for a lot of you to believe that. A lot of you have difficulty with the fact that the maker of heaven and earth loves you. I mean, why should he? So powerful, so big, so perfect. David said, when I consider the heavens, the work of your finger, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you would consider him? Even David had trouble with that. Why, powerful, <laughs> omnipotent God, would you even care? You live in a galaxy that's 100,000 light years in diameter. That's unfathomable. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. If you could get on a beam of light, go past the moon in one and a half seconds, go past the sun in seven and a half minutes, go to the nearest neighbor star, Alpha Centauri, take you two and a half years, traveling at 186,000 miles per second, but it would take you 100,000 years traveling at 186,000 miles to traverse just one galaxy of billions of other galaxies. God spoke it into existence. God loves you. But I've also learned that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And if God loves me, then it's wrong for me to deprecate his property and run around, oh God, why should you love me? I'm so rotten. He knows you're rotten. That's why he's provided a way for you to be saved, apart from your works. You're not t quit telling him that. God loves you. The thoughts that he thinks toward you are thoughts of peace, Jeremiah 29 says, to give you in a future and a hope. Oh, but I'm such a failure. This, this is not new news to God. That's the purpose of the cross. Receive his love. You're beloved of God. Not only that, but he says, you are called to be saints. You go, oh, well, I'll never be a saint. The words to be are italicized, as they should be italicized, which means they're not in the original. The original says, you are called saints. Now, we, we suffer from the medieval, Catholic, wrong view of what a saint is. We think a saint is someone who has performed so many miracles, uh, appeared in um, uh, a tortilla or a cloth or <laughs> a, a sign of a cloud or 
uh, oil has dripped from their hands or something weird like that, or they have a big halo and it's shinier than everybody else, that's a saint. That's wrong. The Bible uses the word saint to refer to people living now, not canonized later. The word saint is hagios in Greek. It means a set-apart person. You are set apart by God. God calls you saints. It just simply means you are set apart to give glory and honor to him. And I love that. I'm called Saint Skip. <laughs> kind of has a ring to it. That sounds kind of goofy, actually. But I love it. Don't worry if the Roman church doesn't acknowledge you as a saint. God does. You're a saint. You're his called apart one. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's really all the time we have. In fact, I'm over time, so I'll cover that uh, next week. And since that was all introductory, we'll finish the chapter next time. But let me close on this note. Grace and peace. This is Paul's formula in every epistle. He does it on purpose. Once you've experienced the grace of God, you experience the peace of God. And some of you tonight don't have peace in your life because you're not living under the undeserved favor, privilege of God. You haven't received his, his grace to you. Because of that, there's not peace in your heart, in your life. You can know God's peace. God wants you to know his peace. But it comes through his son. The gospel brings peace once you've experienced his grace.